we were devastated. And I think the hospital social worker saw that I, at least I was not handling it well. And she called us into her office one day and she broached the subject of um, possibly putting her up for adoption. And that completely leveled me because I was like, you know, first the guilt and the shame. And I thought to myself, like, if I'm not able or willing to take, you know, care to raise my child with special needs, then who would want that? Who would volunteer for that? Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Hi, it's Ronit. I am one week away from the release of my book, When She Comes Back. And if you'd like to learn a little bit about this memoir, you can find me at ronitplank.com. You can go to Facebook, Ronit Plank, or you can go to Instagram, Ronit Plank, and find some news and updates and pre-order information. And there's still time to pre-order the paperback and get the audiobook as a gift. So there's details on that. Um at ronitplank.com. If you do want the audiobook gift, all you need to do is send me a message about your purchase of the paperback in pre-order, and I will get you the audiobook as a gift, which I'd love to do. Um, and on May 11th, which is the release date, I will be appearing live stream uh, on Town Hall Seattle. You can find ticket information at Ronit Plank for that as well. And if you'd like news about podcast episodes and new writing and book news and all that, you can sign up for my newsletter, which again is at ronitplank.com. Thank you for being a listener. Thank you for your support. And I really hope if the book sounds interesting to you, you'll go ahead and order it. Today, my guest is Diana Cooperschmidt, who has written for Manifestation, Power of Moms, Motherwell Magazine, Her View from Home, and Still Standing Magazine, and whose memoir, Emma's Laugh, will be out this June. Welcome, Diana. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. I'm so glad you're here, and I feel like I want to get in there and dig in because we have a lot to talk about. So, Diana, you did not—you were not born in the United States. So can you give a little background about where you were born and how old you were when you came to this country? Sure. Um, so I was born in Soviet Ukraine in 1969, and uh, my parents and I immigrated to the U.S., in 1979. So we were Jewish refugees. The Soviet Ukraine had just opened up its doors. Um, and we made sort of the pilgrimage with, you know, countless other Jews to the States. We arrived in Forest Hills, Queens, and that's where I spent uh, most of my childhood. Mm -hmm. And when you were in uh, Soviet Ukraine, did you know any English? No, nothing. Mm-hmm. And what are your memories from that time? I, you know, I was a child and I had good memories. Um, it was a very normal childhood. We didn't really want for anything. I, you know, obviously there was no talk of politics or religion or, or persecution or anything like that. So 
uh, and my parents didn't really prepare me for the the move. They just sort of announced that like, you know, tomorrow we're going here. And so I didn't have a chance to say goodbye to my friends or anything like that. So it was a little bit of a shock. Um, only later, you know, as I got older, did I find out the reasons for why, you know, they came to this country and the, all the, cons- the uh, underlying persecution that took place that, you know, I didn't really experience or understand as a child. But there, you know, there was an incident where uh, in Soviet Ukraine, when you uh, want to, let's say, sign up your child to music school for like music lessons or voice, you have to pass a test. So, and I remember being, I guess, six or seven years old and um, being interviewed for this music school for voice. Uh, and then the director of the school telling my parents after the fact, after the interview, that they were accepting me into the school and making an exception, overlooking the fact that we're Jews. And when he said that, I remember thinking like, what is that? Because it sounded like a disease. Like, what does that even mean? Like, I had no concept of Jewishness. We didn't celebrate um, the Jewish holidays, obviously. Um, Soviet Ukraine was uh, fundamentally an atheist country at the time, so that nobody you know, celebrated if they were Christian or Catholics or Jews, nobody celebrated, but we, you know, we had sort of like a national celebration where everybody put up a tree, like a Christmas tree, but it was around New Year's to celebrate almost like the winter solstice, right? Mm-hmm. So it was very- Right. And know. I think it's, it's really interesting because I, you're my first guest to um, emigrated from, you know, this part of the world. And I'm Jewish, of course, and I know a little bit about this history, but I mean, not that much. And I don't know that a lot of listeners do know about this history. And I think it's important to sort of have this as a backdrop because your family, I mean, they're, it's it was kind of a last minute decision to move or rather there were reasons probably why they didn't talk about it with you guys, right? Like, was it dangerous? Was it dangerous to be leaving? Um, it, w- it wasn't dangerous per se because we had gotten our visas, but it, it was dangerous to talk about it. it you, you know, I didn't go to um, my school or my parents, I'm sure, didn't tell my teachers, let's say, that we were leaving because then if something didn't work out, like you hear of stories where, let's say, you know, you are waiting for a visa and you don't get it, but everybody in your community knows about it and then you're left behind, then there there would be, you know, mistreatment. There would be like a price to pay for that. Like the, it, it, we didn't go around announcing it because... I mean, adults knew that it was um, systemic um, persecution, right? And Jews didn't go to the best universities, even though they qualified. And, you know, um, and you always, you always kind of knew, I mean, your last name gave it away. And so like everybody knew and you knew that there was going to be different treatments. So we didn't scream it off the rooftops. My husband, who also emigrated from Soviet Ukraine, you know, got bullied and um, and mistreated and called kike and all of that. So these are, you know, so I'm very grateful. <laughs> you know, this was the wave of 79 and mm-hmm. millions of Jews emigrated at that point. Mm-hmm. And it's also, it's an interesting thing because I don't know what your sense of Judaism was at that time because I know that where you were living, you weren't allowed to really express your religion, but yet it sounds like you knew very well that you were Jewish. Yeah. So I knew that I was Jewish on a very superficial level. Um, I became more aware of my Jewishness when we moved to the United States because 
I remember the first year around New Year's, you know, I'm getting ready to set, you know, to set up a Christmas tree because that's what Mm. we did every year up until that Mm -hmm. point. And I turned to my mother and I said, like, where's our tree? And she says, no, we don't, we don't do, we don't do trees anymore. And I said, well, why not? And she's like, well, we're Jewish. And I'm like, well, since when are we Jewish? Like, what does that even mean? (laughs) You know? So that was a shock to the system. And like to this day, you know, I'll pass by, I'll walk down the streets of New York and I'll I'll sniff like pine trees because it brings back those memories. And I, I really did have good memories as a child, which is part of the reason why when people ask me, like, have you gone back to visit whatnot? And I just don't want to because I have these nice memories that I want to hold on to. And I'm afraid that whatever I'm going to see today is just going to decimate all of that. So Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So you grew up in a community in Forest Hills with a lot of other Soviet Jewry, right? Correct. Yep. Mm-hmm. And would you say it was a pretty close-knit community? Yes, it was very close. So a bunch of us, you know, left and landed and Forest, Forest Hills was also very much like United Nations. You know, there are a lot of different uh, cultures and ethnic backgrounds. So, you know, surprisingly, because it was sort of like a, a, a little United Nations, I... I had friends from all different backgrounds and my transition, my assimilation was very easy. It was very seamless, like to go from country to, you wouldn't think so, but then I was young. So I picked up the language very quickly, you know, lost my accent and then almost like never looked back, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you think about your, your family growing up and, you know, what was the feeling in the family? What was the sense of closeness or, you know, uh, tradition? I mean, how, how close and bonded did you feel to your family? We were a very close knit family. So my, um, my grand, my father's mother came to live with us. She came with us, um, in the immigration. So she lived with us. And then my, my little sister was born when I was 14. So, um, it was the five of us that was our primary unit. But then my grandmother, my mother's mother and her husband and her daughter, my mother's older sister lived in Brooklyn and we had relatives and we would spend every weekend going to Brooklyn to my grandmother's house. She would like set a feast. She would, you know, um, we would spend weekends in Brooklyn with, you know, extended and immediate family. So we were very close. Mm-hmm. And you met your husband pretty young, right? Yeah, we met through a family friend. We met at a bat mitzvah. <laughs> and, and then we just started going out in high school. So we were essentially high school sweethearts. And he has a similar background to mine. He's also from Ukraine. He came a year or two after me. And yeah, and then so uh, most of my friends were, I guess, you know, um, the Russian Jewish refugees. Yeah. And your sister was so much younger than you. And I know that you've spoken to me in an earlier conversation about parenting her a little bit. So can you talk about that time? Were were your parents working? Yes, they were working. And, you know, I'd always wanted a sibling or pet, you know, (laughs) I'd always asked for one. But then, you know, my parents decided when I was 14 to finally try again, they were, they were young. It's, it was interesting phenomenon because, you know, in, in Russia in in Soviet Ukraine, you have children as soon as you get married and you get married early. So like 20, right. My mom married at 20, had me shortly thereafter and, and then had my sister 15 years later. And I found that to be something very, um, 
uh, common with, you know, the immigrant families. They they had one child that they brought, let's say, from, from Soviet Ukraine or Russia, and then they would go on to have a second and sometimes a third child. It was very strange. It was almost like, you know, kind of planting your roots in this new country. Mm, yeah. And I wonder if if the single child back at home was on purpose, was a decision. It was. I think I think it was. I mean, families were not large. There was one, you know, if you had two children, that was considered not the norm. Um, and I'm not necessarily sure the reason for that. Um, but I feel like when they came, like a lot of my friends had much younger siblings, you know, and it was not uncommon. So when my sister was born, I was, you know, I took responsibility. I felt very responsible for her because we have this huge age difference, you know. And then when I'd walk down the street with her, um, people would ask me if she's mine. And I would assume that they're asking if she's like my sibling. And then I would say, yes, you know, I'd be like 15 or 16. And <laughs> and then they would be like, but you're so young. You know, I'd be like, no, this is my sister. But I always had very maternal feelings towards her and I felt responsible. So we were very close. Um, in maybe not always a healthy way, uh, because as we got older, we, you know, our roles evolved and, you know, we're more equal now, but that mother daughter kind of, um, dynamic stayed with us for a long time. And it took some time to get to the, you know, friend, sister, you know, equal kind of status that we have now that we share now, which is nice. Yeah. It's a significant age difference. And I know, it, you know, my sister and I are only two and a half years apart and we had that sort of dynamic too. So I can imagine how much stronger it was with that age difference. So when you got married, um, how old were you? 22. Mm-hmm. And and now we're going to head into that part of the story where a lot of, I mean, the, the subject of your book, um, your your first book, which is Emma's Laugh, is your daughter and your family. And for a little bit of background, can you share, um, you know, th- about the birth of Emma and what your life was like in those early months and years? So... Um, we married young, like right out of college. I was 22. My husband was 23 and which is young by American standards, Mm -hmm. but not so much by Russian standards, but we'd been dating since we were 16. So it seemed like just like the natural thing to do. And at the time my parents had, uh, achieved the American dream and moved us to a house in Staten Island and I was miserable. Oh, yes. I remember you mentioned that you moved and it was a real shock for you. It was a shock. It was a bigger culture shock moving from borough to borough than from country to country. Um, And I think I was 17. I was an adolescent. And so this is a very, you know, um, sensitive time. Um, It's identity building, you know, age and I felt uprooted because I left my friends and my boyfriend back in Queens. And here I was Mm -hmm. in a new place where, you know, I was the new kid on the block. I had to prove myself. I had to make new friends. I had to break, you know, clicks. And it was really difficult. And it really unraveled me. I felt, you know, unmoored. I I felt lost. Um, And I think things kind of spiraled after that, I just developed anxiety, which I had then continued to battle for the next, you know, decade or two. Um, and so when 
I, when I graduated from university, we got married immediately um, and moved back to Queens. And then we had a couple of years where we didn't have children. I wanted kids, but my husband said, let's travel, let's see the world. And we were young and I, you know, I'm glad that we waited. Um, and then I got pregnant with Emma when I was 26. Um, and we were in a good place in our lives. Like I had just completed graduate school. I got my, um, MSW, my master's in social work degree, and I was working as a family therapist in a practice and pregnant with Emma. So everything was going according to plan. You know, we were playing by the rules and I was coloring within the lines and everything was going to happen, you know, uh, the way I planned. I mean, little did I know that we really have very little control of, of our lives or, you know, things that happen. And so when Emma when I moved, and I had a great pregnancy. I was young. I was healthy. Uh, you know, I I enjoyed being pregnant. I would get you know seats on the train, and um, <laughs> I had no morning sickness. It was it was lovely being mm-hmm. a human incubator, you know. <laughs> but then when Emma was born, she was born full term, but very small for a full term baby. So she was about four and a half pounds. And somehow the sonograms, you know, didn't pick up on it. They weren't very detailed, I guess, 25 years ago. So I'm not sure how they missed that she was microcephalic, meaning she had a small head circumference. She was, you know, only four, four and a half pounds. Like nobody picked, they weren't looking very closely because uh, we were young and healthy. You know, so when she was born, um, I saw immediately that something was wrong. Like she did not look healthy. She was floppy and, you know, she had some dysmorphic features, which we later learned was, you know, the, some of the, the widening, the wide, the space between her eyes. She had like a, like a non-existent um, nose bridge, low set ears and some other things and the small head. She just didn't look healthy. And when I saw her, I, you know, I was uh, very cognizant of sounding maternally correct because I'm thinking like, if I say the wrong thing, I sound like I'm rejecting my baby. So I said to the doctor, something is wrong. She doesn't look like me or my husband, which was my way of saying like, look, look at her features. Like there's nothing, there's nothing healthy looking about. She looked like a little alien and she didn't cry and she was floppy and they whisk her away I guess to do testing, to do the APGAR test. And and I know in my heart, in my gut, that something is wrong, you know? And then um, and then we find out that, you know, they start doing genetic testing. And I'm, you know, I worked with um, special needs kids before, but not that population. I worked with autistic children. I, I didn't um, work with children with physical disabilities, you know? So it was a shock. We There was nobody in our family. There was no, um, I had no friends that had special needs kids. It was only after Emma was born that one of my closest friends had a Down syndrome little girl. And then another friend had a, a son who was diagnosed with autism. But we were so young and we were like the first of our friends to have a child that there was nobody to compare to. This was uncharted territory for us. And we were lost. Mm-hmm. 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 And and in your family, um, when you were growing up, or even in Queens, when you encountered people with differences, was there ever conversation in your family about that? No. And we we hardly. I, I don't. 
I mean, I didn't know anybody. I, I yeah. it sounds naive and it sounds crazy because, but I, I just, I didn't have exposure. And in, and in Russia, you didn't talk about it because there was no place for kids with, with disabilities. I mean, uh, I'm sure that if I had given birth to her in Soviet Ukraine, I would not have been able to bring her home. There isn't that support, medical or otherwise, to raise a child with special needs, medical needs. I'm sure that they would have, you know, whisked her away and she would have been institutionalized and she would not have lived. Nobody talked about it. It wasn't, you know, a thing in Russia where people raised, you may, you know, I mean, people may have known like Down syndrome children and adults in their community, but I didn't know of any. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it sounds like you were completely taken by surprise. I mean, that must be quite a shock because there was no, there was no indicator at all. Right. And, and new parenthood is so hard anyway. How did you and your husband cope those early weeks and months? We, we, it was hard. We did not, we did not cope very well. I mean, I think that was probably visible to the, um, I mean, we'd go to the hospital and she was in NICU and we would visit her every day. And she, um, she wasn't able to, um, eat by mouth because she aspirated. So they had to do a procedure when she was three weeks old to put in a G tube, you know, to feed her through this gastric tube through her belly. And she needed some oxygen in the beginning. And um, we were not dealing well because we had entered this world that we, we didn't know existed or how to be in this world. And we didn't have a prognosis. They told us that she, they gave us a diagnosis. They said she had this rare chromosomal abnorm, abnormality of second chromosome, fourth chromosome. Um, but they, she was so one of a kind. This was a new mutation, just something that happened um, that they didn't have anybody to compare to. And they couldn't make any predictions as to the quality of her life or how long she was going to live. Uh, when we met with a geneticist um, based on just examination, she was able to say that she's going to live uh, with profound uh, retardation. I mean, at the time they used the word retardation, but they don't anymore. It's not politically correct. And, uh, but at the time, that's what they said to us. Um, and we were devastated. And I think the hospital social worker saw that I, at least I was not handling it well. And she called us into her office one day and she broached the subject of um, possibly putting her up for adoption. And that completely leveled me because I was like, you know, first the guilt and the shame. And I thought to myself, like, if I'm not able or willing to take, you know, care to raise my child with special needs, then who would want that? Who would volunteer for that? You know, and I said that out loud to the social worker and she said, well, there are people that have a calling, you know, you might say a calling in life. And we went home, um, shell shocked. And I said to my husband that we would only consider it if we found a good family. Right. So, um, and he said, and he agreed, he said, because he knew that I would be her primary caregiver and I think we all, both of us envisioned, like we didn't know then there would be all these services and all this help and all these therapies and all these schools and teachers. We, we had no idea that we would have all the support. We sort of envisioned this dark, you know, 
insular, lonely, depressed life, at least for me, because I would have to quit my job and I'd have to be home with her. And, and that would be just like the end of, of my life, you know, in terms of any kind of a happiness. So he almost kind of let me make the final decision because he knew that I would be her primary caregiver. And so when we found this perfect family, we felt very lucky. And I told myself that, you know, Emma deserved better. Um, but also in the back of my head, I was thinking, you know, I deserve better. Like I wanted an unburdened, easy life, which I think, you know, everybody does, you know. So it was a, it was a, a selfish and a selfless decision, I want to say. I really appreciate hearing that perspective from you. Because did you understand that you were protecting yourself as well back then? Or is that something you've come to understand through the years and writing your memoir? I understood that I was protecting myself then. I was young and I was, you know, I didn't maybe have the same wisdoms. And that's why I was able to kind of justify giving her away because I told myself that it was the best thing for her as well knowing that it was mm-hmm. just a bit, I didn't think I would have been in the right set of mind. I would have been emotionally the the best person to raise her. And also I wanted, you know, I, I felt like all those years of, you know, struggling with anxiety, I felt like, you know, I had done everything, as I said, um, uh, by the rules and colored within the lines and everything built up to this, you know, renaissance of my life of having this perfect family and this perfect baby. And then I felt like I'd done my time and I was, I was owed this easy life. I didn't realize how many years that anxiety left a mark for you, that it was so profound that, I mean, how were you, were you depressed as well? I was more anxious than depressed. I feel like, you know, but I always, I'd always had sort of the perfectionist tendencies, you know, and I was also brought up, uh, you know, understanding that our parents sacrificed, right? They left everything to give us a better life. And so there was the sense of accomplishment that I think a lot of, you know, immigrant children feel like they have to accomplish, they have to get an education. My father would say, you know, children have to be and do better than their parents, right? So there was this pressure. And so when I had Emma, I'm like, well, this is not better. This is so not better. So this perfect baby that I was going to have, you know, was not to be. And so I felt like a failure, right? Um, And that's also part of the reason. So part of the reason where I justified giving her up as being an okay thing to do. Like, that's what I told myself. I wanted, when we gave her away, I, I know I wanted a do over. I wanted, uh, I wanted to get it right this time. And so we didn't wait very long to try and get pregnant again. And I was pregnant with my son, Josh shortly, you know, after I think Emma was four, four, four months old or something like that. Um, and yeah, and you know, I look, when I started writing, I, you know, I looked, I had, I reflected and I, I, I had periods of guilt, but then I think I came to a point where I forgave myself because things turned out well. We ended up get giving her up, yes, for adoption, but then by some uh, unusual turn of events, 
we got her back uh, five months later. So this normally doesn't happen with adoptions. And I feel very fortunate. I feel like it was like Beshared. It was meant to be, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, she found her way home. When you decided to give her up for adoption, what did you talk to your parents about this? Did you, you know, what was the feeling in your family and even from your sister about the baby and what you were experiencing? Mm-hmm. So my, um, my parents were very supportive. You know, they didn't meddle. Or they, didn't, they didn't express their opinion. They knew that this was probably the hardest decision that anybody would, be, um, would have to make be asked to make. And so they supported us. They said, we support you, whatever you decide. Um, my, my mother-in-law, my, um, my husband's mother was having a hard time, I think with our decision to, to, um, to give her up. I think she wanted to keep her closer. And so she suggested maybe putting her in a home of some sort next to us where we could visit her. And I just couldn't do that because I felt like that would be like institutionalizing her, right? And I wasn't going to visit my child in in a home. I wanted her to have the sense of family. I wanted her to know familial love. And that's why we decided uh, for the adoption. But they were both sets of parents were supportive. Um, my sister was young, so she didn't, really didn't have an opinion. And I think everybody was in shock because this had never mm-hmm. happened, you know, mm-hmm. to us. So the family that you found was a really specific type of family too. Yes. So the family that we found was an Orthodox Jewish family who had three uh, adopted Down syndrome children. So it's two boys and a little girl, and they want they wanted a sister for the little girl. And so um, we went to visit them in Pennsylvania, and we had a, such a beautiful experience, like the... Um, we had, we shared a meal and, um, the kids were just, just, there was really a lot of love circulating in the home. And we saw that and we saw that we felt that Emma would do well there. So we decided to play. And we felt like also that this was also kind of like very meant to be in terms of like, we were non-practicing Jews, like we were traditional Jews, you know, but here mm-hmm. we're kind of brought back into the fold, right? Like what better <laughs> profile can you ask for, you know, like an yeah. atheist and agnostic than this yeah. Jewish, you know, family. And we also said to ourselves, like they're religious, God-fearing people, then they're, they're not going to hurt her. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so she was about five and a half months when we gave her up. And um, I was home pregnant, crying. I felt um, at some point I started feeling like we made a mistake. The adoptive mother would call me and to tell, to tell me that Emma was in the hospital with pneumonia and RSV. And I think, you know, she was preparing me for the worst. And I was back in New York, literally sitting on my hands, feeling like I can't do anything. We When we... Um, when we gave her up, she was medically stable. She was taking some formula by mouth. Um, and then um, when we gave her up, she was in the hospital more than she was at home. So I was really, I was like super depressed because here I am pregnant and I don't know what I'm doing to this baby with all the stress and anxiety and sadness. And Emma is in another state in the hospital. And 
And one day I voiced to my husband that I felt like we made a mistake. And that's when he told me that he had been visiting her behind my back in Pennsylvania. And not only was he visiting her, but my parents were visiting her too. And they didn't even know about it. They, they, they didn't even know about the other one visiting. So that was like a conspiracy theory. I was like, what is going on? And I thought, how did you feel about that? Why didn't they tell you? Well, they didn't want to upset me because the adoption was an open adoption, but it was not an adoption that we could reverse because we changed our minds. Do you know what I mean? The Mm. only reason we were able to reverse it was that because the conditions under which we gave her up changed. And I don't know if I should go, I, you know, I want to leave a little bit. Yeah. To the, I want to leave a little bit back to maybe people that haven't read any of my pieces and want to read it in the book about the circumstances. I didn't know that they were all visiting. And I, I'm so curious if they also worried about sharing that with you. They didn't want you to feel guilty. Yeah, exactly. And they didn't tell me about it. They, uh, My parents didn't tell me about it. They also, when they visited her, she was in the hospital. They didn't tell me. They didn't want to upset me. And when I told my husband that I feel like we made a mistake, that's when he told me because that was kind of permission for him to say, you know what, I'm feeling the way you do. In fact, so much so that I've been visiting her, that I miss her, like I know you miss her. And based on what he found out during the last visit was what was um, what was the information that allowed us to get her home Mm -hmm. because the Mm -hmm. conditions no longer existed. Mm -hmm. So we were able to reverse the adoption, which is unheard of. I Mm -hmm. feel like, you know, I don't know of many instances where people adopt and then they get to, you know, so we, I felt very fortunate because we knew life with her and without her. And I realized that we preferred the former. Mm, Right. So it kind of gave you this refocus or this way to experience her homecoming. Absolutely. And so she came back, she was a year old. And a month later, I gave birth to my son. And so I had this instant family. It was like twins, you know, (laughs) instant children. And then you went on to have another baby, right? Yeah. And then I had my daughter three years later after my son. Things started happening very quickly. In other words, we had to find specialists and we found out about, you know, early intervention, which... um, Ironically, I've been working for early intervention for the last 20 years, but at the time, I didn't know about the program. Um, And so Mm -hmm. we started kind of collecting our village and we um, signed her up for early intervention. She was evaluated and she qualified for all these services, you know, physical therapy and speech therapy and occupational and a teacher. And I was just like in awe because here is, you know, here are these people coming to my home to work with my special needs child and with me for free and like helping her reach, you know, her potential. Um, So I felt very fortunate, but busy. So we had specialists. She had a lot of medical issues that needed to be resolved. She had multiple surgeries. She developed a seizure disorder when she was three years old. Um, and then a bunch of other things and she was G tube fed. And then we realized we couldn't feed her by mouth anymore because she was, um, aspirating. So we had to adjust, um, you know, balls were always kind of in the air, but we had a lot of support. So the, uh, my husband was a huge support. Mm-hmm. We had our parents, we had 
these therapists, we even had nurses. We had nurses that would cover her during the day. Um, and then as she got older after school hours where they'd pick her up off the bus, you know, feed her and wait until we came home. And that's another part of, you know, the story because I sort of had like a love-hate relationship with the nurses because they were always there, A, and, um, and B, uh, some of them were, you know, not the most caring, not the most, you know, sometimes neglectful. There were instances where she got hurt in their care. And I always sort of, you know, fought against that, you know, that sense of me not being able to protect her and then always feeling like I'm coming into, uh, that I'm coming into occupied territory, that my home always had people in it, right? Whether it was therapists or nurses, I felt like, you know, my home is Grand Central Station. (laughs) And I resented that. But at the same time, I was so grateful for it. You know, it was like this, I need these people, but I don't want to need these people, you know? (laughs) Did you ever, you know, I'm curious about as things sort of, uh, you know, developed in your family and you have this family of five and things kind of hit the day to day. Did you ever find yourself feeling frustrated and wondering how you were going to get through it? Did you allow yourself room to question it even after you've made this recommitment to her? You know, I didn't. Uh, uh, I didn't. And I think I, I never I didn't ask why. Like, I know sometimes when things happen, bad things happen to good people. You know, people start to question, like, why is this happening to me? I, I never thought that way. I, you know, I always kind of thought, like, how? How are we going to get through this? How are we going to get? Because there was no answer for why. Right. Later, I can philosophize and say, you know, after she after she passed, I could say like, okay, there's a reason for all of this. Like I, you know, I can sort of ruminate on that. But at the time it was just getting through the day. And for me, something that was very important was I wanted to maintain a a sense of normalcy, right? Normal family. I didn't want special treatment. I, you know, rarely, even with my coworkers, I really talked about, you know, some of the struggles that we had with our, you know, with Emma, because I didn't want to be pitied. I didn't want to be that special parent. And so I think that's why I never really, you know, sought out the special needs community. I didn't make any, any friends. Well, my, my friend had the Down syndrome little girl, but I felt like we were living different lives because her daughter was so much more advanced and, and there were few comparisons. Um, and it's unfortunate because I feel like had I taken advantage of the community that was out there, I would have felt less lonely. But, you know, but I felt because we were so busy with all three kids, I there was no time for me to pause and say like, okay, and, and reflect really on anything, just getting to the end of the day, just making sure that, you know, my kid, my, my typically developing kids had the, the, the attention that they needed you know, mm-hmm. um, that Emma was getting. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like you're, uh, like in general hard on yourself or do you know what, how do you feel? You know, I try, I'm trying not to lead you with a question, but I wonder if you had this idea that you just, you had made this decision and you were committed and you just had to forge ahead. Yeah. I mean, I, I did. I'm always, you know, I'm hard on myself. I'm, my worst critic, I'm a perfectionist, like all of those things. So things had to work well, things had to be, you know, a well oiled machine. So as much as I could take control of situations, I tried to, 
But, you know, Emma taught me and the whole situation with nurses and every, you know, everything uh, taught me that you have very little control of things. Um, and so, yeah, I, but I did, I still try to, I tried, uh, I tried to control things as far as what my uh, healthy children receive, right? What my typically developing children receive. So they were treated differently for sure, right? Emma had limited agency over her body or, you know, her thoughts, but my kids were healthy and they were going to reach their potential. And so, you know, that, uh, I'm not a tiger mom, but that still that, you know, there was this push towards, you know, meritocracy, like you have to do well, you have to succeed, you have to get an education, you can't waste your gifts, you know, like, mm -hmm. um, and so. Cause the gifts are so obvious, yeah, right. In, yeah. in comparison. Yeah. The gifts are very mm -hmm. obvious. It's very right. You know, I uh, <clears throat> I li I don't know if you, you're familiar with um, uh, the poem uh, "Welcome to Holland." It, mm -mm. Okay, so it's very um, well known and popular among the special needs community, and it basically details. So, uh, the mom of a special needs child details uh, metaphorically what it's like to raise a special needs child. So she describes it like. When you're pregnant, you're planning a trip to Italy and it's all very exciting and flashy and wonderful. And, but when you land, you, the, you, the, uh, the pilot announces that you've landed in, in Holland, not in Italy. And so, and that's sort of, uh, you know, a comparison of, you know, having a, a typically developing child and then giving birth to a special needs child. So you're in shock because you were planning on Italy, but you're in Holland. And so what do you do? You have to learn a new language and you have to get a new guidebook and you have to meet new people. And it's an adjustment, you know, but you realize that Holland is not so terrible. You know, it's not this place <laughs> of pestilence and famine, you know, it's windmills and it's Rembrandts and it's tulips, you know, and so you adjust and you make new friends. And so we always lived, I felt like with, you know, straddling these two places um, with one foot in each country, mm, if yes, you will. Yes, yes, yes. What What is there that you'd want parents of kids who are not neurotypical or not physically typical to know based on what you experienced and what you've seen and what you've lived through? So, I mean, for me, the uh, sort of the lessons that Emma imparted were that um, sometimes you can find beauty where you least expect it. And that our special needs kids have a lot to teach us and we should pay attention. And for me personally, that sometimes, you know, gifts come in differently packaged, you know, wrapping paper. Um, and that um, it's not at the end of the day, what I learned was that, you know, the world that I feared dark and lonely and depressing. It was not that at all. It was beautiful and it was full and it was luminous and it was happy. Mm -hmm. Did you, did you come to forgive yourself a long time ago or more recently? I, I forgave myself a long time ago. I mean, I had to, otherwise I, you know, I wouldn't be able to, yeah, I, I forgave myself because I was so, um, I had to, in order to fully, you know, embrace and accept uh, Emma, I had to 
fully accept her in order to, you know, really love her uh, fully. I feel for a long, for a long time, I struggled, uh, I think, because I envisioned, you know, the kids, you know, my son and my daughter uh, graduating and then moving on and leaving the house and, you know, starting their lives. And I was kind of hoping for that for Emma, you know, for a long time, I sort of, uh, I sort of fantasize like, you know, my time back where, okay, the kids are going to be able to fend for themselves. And then we'll be able to start like a new chapter in our lives. But of course, that was never going to be possible with Emma. And when I realized that, you know, she was going to be with us for as long as we were able to take care of her, you know, that's, I feel like that's when I really, truly accepted her and fell in love with her that much more. Mm-hmm. And when did you decide to write the book? I decided to write the book. Well, so I started writing as a way of processing what, what happened. She had passed away when she was 18, almost 19. And very unexpectedly, because she was medically stable. I mean, when she was an infant, the doctor, one of the doctors told us that, you know, based on her medical issues, that kids like this don't live past their first birthday. So for a long time, we were holding our breath. But by the time she was 18, and I recorded this video of her and put it on Facebook of all the things that she had learned over the years and bragging about her skills, um, we, we had we had exhaled. We were not worrying about her health anymore. She Everything was under control. Her seizures were under control. She was healthy uh, from our understanding and by everybody else's understanding. And then she got pneumonia and then um, a, acute respiratory distress syndrome. And then she was intubated. And two weeks after she went into the hospital, she passed away. And so... I was now processing a different kind of grief because when she was born, I was grieving this, you know, idea of a healthy child. But now I'm in earnest, you know, grieving the loss of my actual child. And so I started writing to process and to make sense of what happened. And then I realized that it was becoming, it was kind of taking on a life of its own and somebody suggested, my friend said, you should really write a book. And she would say that to me all throughout. Like you, when we were raising Emma, she would say like, oh my God, you have to write a book. You have all these stories, you have all these anecdotes. And I would be like, please, everybody, you know, I'm not special. A lot of people have special needs kids. This is like nothing to write about. But so the book came out of, you know, processing the grief. Um, and then I started because I'm not a writer by training, by profession, by anything, education. So I started taking <laughs> it's it. It's so hard to believe that to me. It's so hard for me to believe that. You know, after I finished writing, I said, I will not so much as write another um, <laughs> greeting card. Birthday card <laughs> is the extent of my writing that I, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. I had to learn. It's a skill. It's a craft. Uh, not everybody can do it. I, I hope I did it justice and I, I did my best, but it was not an easy task. Well, it task. looks like the, the early reviews are very, very good. So I think you probably did an amazing job. Can you talk a little bit about what you do now and, and what your work is now and where people can find you? Yeah. So I'm, you know, I continue working for the um, Department of Health in the Early Intervention Program, which is 
what I've been doing for the last 20 years. And it's very rewarding because I, you know, I'm sort of now able to give back. Like Emma was the recipient of the, this program of these services. And now I'm able to, uh, in my role, I approve services for kids with developmental delays and disabilities from birth to three. So it's super rewarding. I love my job and that's what I do full time. And then on the weekends, I, um, I work as a portrait photographer and I specialize in newborns and family photography and weddings and just anything and everything. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I can see all of your beautiful, uh, everything you post is on your Instagram, right? Yes, With, yes. People can see all your beautiful portraits. Thank you. Yeah, it's there. Yeah. So can you share those, um, your social media handle and... Yeah. So uh, I'm on Facebook under, you know, my name. I also have a, a photography page, um, DK Photography. But most of my um, images I put on, and my writing as well, on um, Instagram under uh, uh, pics by DK. Okay. And there is my, my link trees there and my essays are attached to the link tree and you can pre-order my book also on the Instagram link tree and, um, and, and a website, um, uh, under Diana Cooper Schmidt is my website. Mm -hmm. So there'll be some. Okay. And I'll have too. all those links, all those links on the show notes and everywhere. And I think I'd like to also share that poem, Holland. Um, in the show notes for people to read. And of course, with the poet, um, the poet's name and everything. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story and Emma's story. And, um, you know, I know there's so much more to the story and that's why people should go and read the memoir. Um, there's a lot more to understand and learn. And thank you so much for being my guest, Diana. Thank you, Ronate. It was, it was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening.